Our scripture reading tonight, <clears throat> excuse me, comes from Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Uh, Brother Anthony will be speaking to us on stewardship uh, relationships tonight. That's Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandments, commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, good evening. To be with you, church family, we're going to nearing the end of this little short series we've done last month and this month talking about the idea of stewardship and wanting to be good stewards of what God has graciously given to us. Um, you know, each week we've talked about different aspects of gifts or different gifts that God has given to us that He's asked us to steward. And each time that we've come to one of those gifts, we've noticed that they've been a little bit different. For instance, uh, the gift of time is something that um, doesn't increase or decrease based upon the person. It's pretty static. It's equal amongst us all. The gift of money is quite opposite to that. Um, not everybody has the same amount of money or the same availability to do certain things with money. Uh, last week we talked about the gift of spiritual gifts and that they are all different. Tonight we're going to talk about the gift of relationships. And this one is different. Because this gift, this resource, this blessing from God is dynamic, active, it's alive, and it's out of your control, right? Like money is inanimate, right? It doesn't live and breathe. It doesn't uh, talk back to you. It doesn't respond. It just, you know, you send it where it needs to go and you do certain things with it. Your spiritual gifts are not necessarily something that you have to wrestle and fight with, but they're just within you that have to be discovered and then practiced. Uh, time is not something that can wake up one day and say it doesn't really feel like giving you any, you know, and you have to like deal with that. Um, so it's kind of inanimate. But relationships are different because you don't control the other person that you're in a relationship with, or you shouldn't at least. And so it's going to be a little bit different. So as you've seen each week as we've gone through different gifts that God has given us, the way that stewardship looks in each one of these resources or gifts is a little bit different. But the principles have always been the same. And the principles from the beginning we've talked about are, first and foremost, you were called by God, designed by God, and created. And the way the world is created, um, we are naturally supposed to be stewards. Stewards because we don't own the things that God has given to us. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And if you don't have a good, deep-rooted doctrine or understanding of the creation, that this stuff belongs to God, like the song we sing, This Is My Father's World. If you don't have a good grasp on that, um, you're going to have a difficult time seeing your life with the responsibility of stewardship. And the second principle has been this that we will always be poor stewards. We won't steward well the gifts God has given to us, time, money, talents, relationships. We won't steward those well when we are trying to get from them 
what we're supposed to get from God, meaning, purpose, identity, value, life. We were never supposed to get from the gifts the core things about our life that we're supposed to get from God. And we always are wasteful or scared of, our, of the things that God has given to us when we're trying to consume from them only the things that God can give us. You know, I'm not sure I've done a good job of this, so I need to just pause for a second and make sure that I define stewardship very well for you, as best I can. And so here's the best way that I can define stewardship. The concept of stewardship just means the active administration of the resources that belong to another by the way of guarding and protecting them, along with maximizing the potential that is within them. So there's two dynamic things that we got to be paying attention to. You and I are administrators of things that belong to God that are given to us. Time, money, gifts, relationships, resources, things of that nature. And we are to guard and protect those things, to cherish them. And at the same time, we are to maximize or cultivate the potential that is within them for the very most that they're supposed to be. So we talk about uh, stewarding time. That means that we, you and I are to seize opportunities given to us in the present moments for eternal purposes. So there's not a time, really, when you're stewarding time well that is wasted time or unnecessary time or time that just doesn't matter. We're supposed to make the most of the time that we have. Money, we are to make available and then direct our resources, our money, towards purposes that have eternal significance. And at the same time as we're doing that, as we're directing our money, investing in people and projects that have eternal ramifications, we're also supposed to extract eternal value out of things in life that are temporal. For instance, like our car or our home, those things in the next 300 years will not be here, even even though you might have a great car that runs great in 300 years, it probably won't be the car that somebody is driving. That's a temporal thing. But you and I should extract eternal value out of those things because we're pouring our money into them. When we talk about our spiritual gifts, the way we steward that well is we discover and then we grow and our God-given spiritual abilities for the purpose of building up the kingdom of God by way of service to all mankind. And so tonight we're going to talk about how do we steward relationships. I want to define it for you first, and then we'll look at how it works together. This is the best way I can define stewarding relationships. You and I are to guard and then to grow fellowship with those at different levels of intimacy, by the means of selfless love for the sole purpose of mutual benefit or edification. So at different levels of intimacy, you know, we've got core group and then it grows out. We are to guard, protect, and to grow close fellowship by selfless love for the purpose of mutual edification, stewarding relationships. Tonight we're going to do four things. We're going to look at the people in these relationships We're going to see some principles that that guide us. We're going to ultimately see the one final primary principle, and then we'll find the power to do that together. So let's get after it. First of all, let's ask a question. Who are the people that you are supposed to steward relationship with? Who, Who in your life are you supposed to really pour into and steward these relationships with? Now, if you're a social butterfly, uh, the answer is probably 
less less than what you really think it should be. So if you're kind of a social person, you're probably not supposed to steward as many people as you like to spend time with. Now, if you're a shy person, it's probably more people than what you really want it to be. It probably should stretch you a little bit if you prefer to be maybe a little bit more alone. You know, in light of the recent, uh, probably the last 10 or 15 years, the recent explosion of friendships made available through the internet, we call it social media, um, this has exploded our network or our belief of how many people we can really have relationships with. Um, in fact, if you, I think the average number of Facebook friends across the United States hovers around like the number four or 500 people that, that we're able to have that, that many friends. Think about your own list, how many people you have on your list if you have one of those social networks. Um, so in light of all of that, in October of 2014, um, a lady named Maria Konkiva wrote an article for the New Yorker, and she titled it, The Limits of Friendship. The Limits of Friendship. Now, she referenced the work of an anthropologist and a psychologist all in one. This sounds like a really, really enlightening guy, right? An anthropologist and a psychologist. His name is Robin Dunbar. And Robin Dunbar decided to focus a long time ago. He, he's a professor at Oxford. He decided to research um, for his primary goal in life in the mid-80s. He was going to research the grooming habits of primates. You know, primates like apes and monkeys. And, and he was going to research why and how they groom each other because those animals um, groom each other in a pack or in a group. They, you know, pick out the burrs out of their fur and massage the skin for each other. And he began to research that. He specifically wanted to uh, find out why they spent so much time grooming each other. Well, long story short, this led him to find out that um, basically within these groups, they created social structures. And so he started to research the relationship between a brain size of an animal and how big its social pack was, how big its social circle was. Years and years later, he began to apply some of these concepts to humans. He began to ask, you know, is there really a de definitive number of people that we you know, like to spend time with? And in all of his research, his conclusion came to this, that humans in their brain, the neocortex, which is the front part of your brain where you organize and where you remember and where you look at a face and re remember that's where this person works and who they're married to and, and how old they are. That's in the front part of your brain. He, he came to um, a conclusion that we have the ability, the, the physical capacity to know well 147.8 people. 150, let's just call it that, right? Is that fair enough? That, that the human brain can only actually like look at somebody and remember their name, their family situations, their current job, their life status, major events that have happened in their lives like moves or death in a family. We only have the capacity to know about 150 people in our brains. We just can't do more than that. Um, that that's kind of the limits of that. But then he also noticed that it scales down um, it was almost like concentric circles. It comes down to about groups of 50 where we have, um, you know, more intimate uh, relationships. We can know them a little bit better. Oftentimes we would call upon them, invite them to special events. And then there was another segment. It was a segment of 12 to 15. And this was the group that if a death in this group happened, it would devastate the group. About 12 to 15 people in your life that would just bring your life to a screeching halt for a moment. And then finally, there was one last group that he said between three and five were the closest 
or intimate, most intimate friends. That's what the, the human is really structured to be able to do. My point saying all this is this, that we have, first of all, levels of relationship. Not all relationships are the same. The relationship you share with a spouse or a parent might be different than what you share with a coworker. So they're not all the same kind of relationship, and that's totally normal. That's okay. The other thing is there are limits to our relationships. You and I can't be closely intimate to hundreds and hundreds of people. We're just not able to do that. We were never supposed to do that. And this idea that we can have thousands of friends on the Internet and actually keep up with all of them and know them well and, and, be, and bless them and have them bless us is just not a possible thing. So all of us, we cannot steward close relationships with everybody we meet in our life. But we do need to be stewarding some relationships. We need to be uh, practicing stewardship in our relationships. You know, what's interesting about these numbers that Dunbar found out in all of his research is it aligns really closely with the life of Jesus. Now, now you remember the numbers at 150, 50, 12 to 15, and 3 to 5. Work backwards with me and look at Jesus' life. Who were his inner three? Peter, James, and John. And then he had how many that were his apostles? Twelve. And then about how many did he send out as his disciples that he trusted? In Luke chapter 10, how many? Seventy. And then about... 120 were his disciples that followed him in his life. Interesting, right? Jesus didn't need Dr. Dunbar to prove this to him. He just lived it. I would suggest this to you is just by way of uh, a model for you to think about in your life. That you probably have the capacity to know maybe 150. This church is actually bigger than that on Sunday mornings. That, that, that we have the capacity to know about that many people well. Um, interestingly enough, the average wedding size in America today is 164, who we would invite to weddings. The average size of people that we invite to a 50th birthday party is 61, right? Do you see how this works? It's crazy, isn't it? So who should these people be, right? I would encourage you to do this. First and foremost, begin with those that are closest to you. Now, not everyone, but begin with those. Who should be in these groups, right? Who should we be stewarding? I would encourage us to begin with those that are closest to us. You know, mobility and access, like the internet and the vehicle, have tempted us to ignore people that are near us, promising that you and I can just pick and choose, pluck certain people that we like, certain people that we get along with, and those are the ones that we should have friendships with, and ignore people that are near to us. I would encourage us to, to um, resist that to a certain degree. That there are people near to you in your life, whether they be a coworker, a neighbor, um, a family member, a church family member, that are probably supposed to be in your life. And mobility and access were never designed to allow us to escape relationships that were meant to refine us. And we're supposed to actually engage in these things. Three key areas for a Christian to consider in building relationships would be, first of all, your immediate family. This might be a spouse or a parent, grandparents and siblings. If you're looking for specific instructions on how to connect with them, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 are places that teach you how to you know, honor your parents and mutual love and respect to the spouse and honoring our uh, children, honoring their parents, and then parents treating their children right. The second place to look would be the church. Now, what's unique about the church is you have relationships that take on different forms in the church. 
Uh, we have side-by-side -side relationships in the church, that we're all equal together in the body of Christ. There's not a member that's more important than another member. And Romans 12 teaches us how to interact with those where we love and care for each other, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But in the church, you also have over-under type relationships where we have elders in our congregation that we willingly submit to them and we honor them in that relationship. That, that's a unique relationship. The scripture also points to us in Romans 14 and 15 to a strong and a weak type relationship where he says in Romans 14, 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not as to quarrel over opinions. Romans 15, 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not just to please ourselves. So even in the church, there are different types of forms of relationship. And the calling there is that we, you and I would be people that welcome members of the body. And lastly, I would say family, church, but also your community. Close friends, work, your coworkers, your neighbors, non-Christian friends mixed into that. You and I should be paying attention to those people because I believe that God is involved in bringing people lives that we are supposed to have relationship with. So those are the people that I believe that, that we ought to be considering who we steward in our relationships with. And what are the principles? Now, remember back in um, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when, I was when we were talking at the very beginning about what stewardship really is, that there's two principles to stewardship. Principle 1 we've already talked about, which is ownership, that God owns what he, all that he made. And in this situation, God is the one who made people. He owns them. We don't. And the second principle was responsibility. That God gave to mankind to tend and to keep the garden, to protect and to cultivate. And so within those, it's important to note that in stewarding relationships, people belong to God. You are not responsible to manage people. You are responsible to manage relationship, which is what exists between two people. So like Paul would say, as much as depends upon you, live at peace with all men, but you might not actually be able to do that because as I said before, in this gift, the other party is dynamic. It's alive. It has a will. And so you might not be able to control that person. You might not be able to um, manage all of that. And you don't own that person. God does. And the only thing that we are called to manage, to steward, is not the person but the relationship. There are some principles that abound. You, know, you can find lists all over about how to build relationships well. You know, the principles of good stewardship and relationship. Oh, there's all kinds of them, like communication, conflict resolution. You know, all, there's, there's lists galore about how to have good relationships. I just want to give you two items from what we learned from Jesus Christ. In John 1, Verse 18, we see um, a, a scripture that tells us about who Jesus really is, what his essence was about, the way that he lived, and the way that he lived produced relationship with us. And John says in John 1.18 that Jesus Christ was full of two things, and these two things cultivated relationship with us. He was full of grace, and he was full of truth. And these two elements, these two aspects, these two principles, I believe, will guide us in how we steward those relationships that are in our levels of uh, intimacy. First of all, grace. You know, it's unimaginable for two sinful people to try to relate well and not have to need grace with each other. 
You know, to take two sinful people with shortcomings, uh, people that have failings, people that aren't up to par, right, up to perfection, and say, you two people, I want you to relate well, and between you two, I want you to get along. That's what relationship is. It's unimaginable to say those two people wouldn't need to have grace with each other. You and I must be ready, like mentally prepared. We should probably not be as shocked as we are sometimes by the necessity of extending mercy to somebody. You ever notice how like flabbergasted we act sometimes when like sinful people need extension of mercy and grace? We probably should be a little bit more prepared in our minds that grace is going to be required if a relationship is going to sustain any duration of time. Those of you that have been in relationships with people, whether it's a marriage or a friendship for longer than a few years, know that if this is going to have any substance, any meaning, any depth to it, if it's going to last for any period of time, somebody along the way is going to have to say, that's okay. I forgive you. Mercy, grace. It's going to have to happen. So you and I should be ready to extend understanding, mercy, and forgiveness. Grace is the only way that you and I can ever relate to God. And so therefore, it's the only way you and I will ever sustain a relationship with another person. Paul was uh, talking to us in Ephesians 4 about how to go from being the old man to the new man. And he started rattling off some really key ideas. And in verse 32 of chapter 4, he said that as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven us, we should be ready to forgive someone else. That, that his forgiveness of us empowers us to be ready to forgive those that are in our life. So grace is necessary, but also truth. Now, truth in a relationship is the only real pathway you have to growth. It's the only pathway you have to real intimacy. It's the only pathway you have, you have for a relationship to be real. It's the only way that you and I can have real relationship is to have truth. Having integrity in relationships, that's what I mean by truth, is having integrity uh, is difficult. It's not easy. But it is an ultimate act of love. You see, integrity in a relationship gives the person that you are relating to the accurate picture to respond to. It gives them the reality that they can then respond to. Truth in a relationship allows us to give somebody a clear picture of who we are and what the relationship is and allow them to respond to that. And if we don't, we will be growing a relationship that is not real, but is fake. It's false. And sometimes um, we sustain, we, we, we like prop up relationships that are not based upon reality, that are not based upon truth, for the short-term relief of not dealing with hard conversations. For the short-term relief of not having to say something difficult, not having to invest in somebody. But I'm telling you, if we will be willing to have integrity in our relationships, to have grace, to be able to come to somebody and tell them the truth in a way that says, I value this relationship, those relationships will either break off because the person's not ready for that, or they will grow into deeper intimacy and greater strength. A side note when we talk about this is this. You know, being honest with somebody is way different than just, quote, telling it like it is. You know, there's a major difference between honesty and just, I'm just going to tell it like it is. I just tell the truth flat out, you know. Um, there's certain, th that sometimes resonates with us, so like people just tell it like it is. But there's a lot of, there's a big difference there. Telling it like it is out of frustration is not the same as being honest with somebody.
You know the root word of honesty? It's honor. The root word of honesty is honor. And so to speak honestly with somebody means to tell that person the truth in a way that honors the relationship. In a way that says, I value this relationship continuing after I tell you this truth. So I'm going to tell you the truth in a way that honors the fact that I'm in this relationship. Just telling it like it is with no regard for the person is not honesty, it's selfishness. It's actually us just discharging our frustration and pain so that we will temporarily feel better because we want to just explode. That's what telling it like it is really means. Honesty says, I value this relationship continuing after this difficult conversation, so I will tell you what is truth. So being truthful about who you really are is vital to stewardship, and at the same time, letting the person be who they really are is necessary. You see, truth is so important in relationships. And so many relationships are, are stagnant because they are built upon things other than truth, oftentimes temporary satisfaction. But let's get to the ultimate principle. Grace and truth are vital. You've got to have them for relationship. But the ultimate principle, Gene read for us in Romans 13. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All of the law, every little commandment that has been given is fulfilled in this concept that you would love somebody. Love is the ultimate principle. A love for somebody else. You see, what exists between two people should be love. And love, you know, we've got to kind of clean that word up, and I know we've done this a few times, but what that word means is a sacrificial interest in what is best for the other person. Like, I look at you and say, what is best for you is what I value the most, and I'm willing to sacrifice so that you will have what is necessary for you. This is the one principle that guides all stewardship and relationships. This is what makes being intimate with somebody really feel like it's impossible and really scary sometimes. This also means that you can immediately, instantaneously, and always steward your relationships. Whether they're your closest relationships, like a spouse, or a child, or a parent, or they're just a distant relationship, like a coworker or maybe, maybe a, a friend that's kind of casual, or a neighbor. You can always, immediately in the moment, steward that relationship without needing it to be the deepest of intimacy by just loving that person. It might not demand all of your time or a long duration of time, but you can always love. So that's easy enough, right? Close up shop. You just need to sacrificially, selflessly care about the needs and the, what's best for the other person. And if you'll just do that, your relationships will be stewarded well. Sounds like we could just close the book and be done. But unfortunately, it's not that easy. You see, the reality of sin in our life means that loving another person in the purest sense is nearly impossible. Nearly impossible. The truth is, we don't like to think about this or hear this too often, but the truth is, in most, probably all of our relationships, we love ourselves in them. And so much of our investment into relationships is actually an act of self-love. Think about it. How quickly does our love go away when the person we're in relationship with does something that harms us? How quickly does our love vanish? Who is the love for then? Who is that relationship for? 
Okay? Um, how quickly do we act ugly when the person we're in relationship with stops doing what we want them to do or stop being what we want them to be? How quickly are we to act ugly with them? You see, what we're saying is, you've stopped doing and being what I want you to be, therefore now I am no longer want this relationship. That relationship is an act, you, we've built that out of love of self. In fact, this is how psychologists now openly and comfortably define types of relationships. This week as I was reading a bunch of different articles about relationships, um, I came to one Psychology Today article that had 10 different um, designations of types of relationships, and all 10, all 10 relationships revolved around the idea of here's how you go fill voids in your life with people. And it's not like this is a weird thing or like this is a problem. This is how people, you know, you have healing relationships, you have transitioning relationships, you have mutual interest relationships, but all of your relationships, what psychologists will say, is you just trying to fulfill certain holes and needs you have in your life. So you just collect this playbook of people that you call upon when the moment arises that you have a certain need. That, that, that's how they actually see. And the best way for you to get healthy is to collect a portfolio of friends, family, and, and you know people in your life that you finally have a collection, the right collection, that fills all the holes that you have in your life. So you just diagnose all of the emptiness, the, you know, the brokenness, the hurt, when you understand who you are, and then you collect the right kind of friendships for the right period of time, and you've got this book of friendships, then you'll be what they call whole. You see, what they're describing is what we actually kind of do. Psychologists just observe people's behavior. They don't invent this. They observe behavior. What they're saying is, what we oftentimes do is go horizontal for our justification, for our redemption, for our salvation. We go horizontal. I have needs, and I go horizontal. You see, we build relationships out of self-love because we have doubts. We have fears. We have vacuum in our heart that needs to be filled. We doubt we can be accepted, so we jump onto people who say they accept us. We fear being rejected, so we love someone who promises us not to leave. We have a need to climb a social ladder, so we latch on to relationships that promised us ascension in society. Do you see how we make these relationships that fill needs that we feel like we still have? We have a vacuum in our soul, and we latch on to people who fill those needs. We are using relationships to what I would call biblically to redeem us, to save us. To give us life. This goes back to our basic core principle. We are poor stewards of relationships because we're asking our relationships to give us what only Jesus Christ can. You will continue to try to collect people into your life to fill the holes you have in your life until you turn those needs to God. You see, it's Jesus who gives us the fullness of the overflowing fullness of love that is the ultimate demonstration of self-sacrifice. You want to know if you're acceptable and can be accepted? You don't look to a friend. Look to the life of Jesus. His righteousness makes you accepted in the eyes of God. You want to know that you are appeased and forgiven and, and released from your guilt? 
Don't find a friend that pats you on the back. Look to the cross where it says, yes, you're forgiven. You want to know that you've been not rejected, but accepted into the fold of God? Accepted into a family? Don't just find somebody that promises you for a moment acceptance. Look to the resurrection where Jesus says, because God accepted the sacrifice, I accept you into my family. Me? Yes, you. Prideful, sinful me, you've accepted me. Yes, you. Because of the resurrection, I accept you. You and I have needs that our heart has that needs to be filled. Purpose, meaning, significance, life. And it's all found in Jesus Christ. In him is a wealth of self-giving that will fill you up. You see, God is the only being that is self-sustaining. None of us are self-sustaining. You probably had to eat today. You probably slept last night. You probably drank something today. You had to put something into your existence so that your body could sustain, so that your life could sustain. God is the only being that is self-sustaining, self-contained, meaning he has the capacity to fill you up and never run out. Everybody else in your life does not have the capacity to fill your heart. No one does. Only God. And when you come to God through Jesus Christ and He fills all of your needs, you then become a person who is ready to steward the beautiful, wonderful, grace-filled gift of a relationship in your life. But until you get your relationship vertically right with God, you will use the horizontal for self-love, not as an avenue of self-giving. And you and I were called never to be self-takers, you know, taking from people in self-love, we were called to be people who give of ourselves as an expression of love. And that's where we'll find what the Bible calls true life. So if you need that, let's uh, stand and sing. You come forward.